Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome back to the Form Book Club. We are going to conclude our own internal discussion of this book by Father McTague, Real Philosophy for Real People. Uh, but next week, we'll have Father McTague himself with us, God willing, and we can ask him all the questions we have and get his comments. Uh, we are going to cover the last chapter of this book, chapter six, which is ethics. And it's interesting, this book is a very well-structured and compact book, which is why it's taken us so long to discuss it, to unpack it. But in his famous ethical wedding cake, you know, we've covered the foundation, which is metaphysics or the worldview, of which he's explained there's only several potential ones you can have. And then based on that, uh, actually founded on that, upon that in the cake, you've got the anthropology, the, the idea of man, what he, what's his nature, and so on. And we've covered those things. Now we come to the final chapter, ethics, which is the top of the cake. And he's going to discuss different ethical systems, different ethical methodologies, and how to diagnose and prescribe, you know, ethical situations. So the title is Ethics, colon, The Art and Science of Evaluating Human Behavior in terms of ought and ought not. That's kind of a long and somewhat cumbersome title. He tells us what he's going to do, page 102 at the bottom. The tools of this chapter will allow you to perform the functions of diagnosis, evaluation, and prescription of what? Of possible ethical choices. And then on page 203, he says he will then give us a brief account very top of the page, of the necessity and benefits of, an, of identifying and articulating a moral methodology. How do you go about evaluating things? Finally, continuing there, he will develop a taxonomy, that is a kind of a list of various varieties or species of moral methodologies. We will identify the best moral methodology. That, that's his plan for the chapter. And then, well, I want to jump right into page 204 here, middle of the page, what does evaluation include? Because remember, this chapter is about evaluating moral choices. And he says, moral evaluation includes discourse about what are known as the three moral determinants. What are they? The moral quality of the act itself, the intention of the moral agent, the circumstances in which the act takes place. So, the act itself, the intention of the actor, and the surrounding circumstances. That's what he's going to cover in this chapter. So I, I just want to get a little intro to where we're going. Thank like you. To... Well, what he does, uh, first of all, I'd like to point out, Father, that he tells us, you know, absent a moral methodology, you know, on page at the top of 204, he says, we will act impulsively especially under stress or under the influence of strong appetites. So he's encouraging us to think about these things, you know, ahead of time. 
and then uh, and why that's important. And then these three things you just listed, the moral quality of the act, the intention of the agent and the circumstances, he says that a reliable moral methodology has to take into account those three things. And if any of them are left out, that's how you know you're dealing with an insufficient moral methodology. And so what he does for a while here is he actually goes through incomplete moral methodologies and shows you how they leave out one of these three things. Yeah, and I just want to uh, just set things up. I mean, you've done that by giving the uh, the framework for the chapter, but I, I want to just use the epigraph. Obviously, I love Chesterton, and the epigraph at the beginning says, art, like morality, consists of drawing the line somewhere, which is, again, <laughs> That's great. Chesterton's yeah. most charming and best, and then he connects that with the, the first sentence of the chapter. Paul Weiss told me, one of the most important tests a philosophy can face is what that philosophy allows you to do to other human beings. Um, you know, so that, you know, the line, where is the line? And ultimately, it's connected to what you do with other human beings. And I think that sets it up. And then the methodology is going to follow is what you've just discussed there. Mm-hmm. And then if I can just maybe just want, while I'm on a flow here, sure. there's, a, there's a term I didn't know because I'm not a philosopher, but page 205. And it says moral method. This is the beginning of the second full chapter moral methodologies may be divided into two basic types namely the deontological and the teleological now i knew what tele- teleological meant but i did not know what deontological meant so this was a new term for me i always like to learn new words and it said deontological methodologies attend to morality primarily as duty uh, and then teleological Am I acting for the right end? Am I using a proper means to a worthy end? So these two aspects of the, the of methodology for ethics, deontological duty uh, and teleological end, that, uh, you know, I, I found that very, very helpful. And these come from the Greek words telos for end or goal for teleological. And dei, delta, epsilon, iota, or dei, dei, it's a verb, means it, it must, we must. So the idea of duty. And, of course, the, the classical and famous exponent of deontological morals is Immanuel Kant. Very Germanic, very Prussian, actually. It's We do it because it's our duty to do it. That's what determines what we do and what we don't do. And he has a wonderful chart on page 207 in which he shows the two different major classifications of deontological and teleological and then what the different so to speak, varieties are of those. Uh, and he will develop what he says, it's on the lower right-hand side of that diagram, prudential personalism based on natural law. So this is a, again, it's a very fine analysis mm-hmm. of the possible methodology one can have in evaluating moral acts. And as you said, Vivian, he shows why we must exclude some and we end up with one alone, and that is the prudential personalism. Right. You mentioned Kant's imperative, but if you look on his chart, 207, you'll see that there's other kinds of duty-driven systems, including religious legalism. Right. So if you've been formed in a legalistic system and you drop God out of that system, then you tend to replace 
that missing component was something else. And in the state of legal positivism, you replace God with the state. And now law becomes the defining, uh, the, the thing that defines your duty. And, you know, if you're clever like Kant, you say, well, I don't want God or the state. <laughs> I think I'll come up with my own categorical imperative. He wants that, to be, he wants to be God. Exactly. There you go. He makes himself God in defining what his own imperative and then following that. But the point is, is that all three of these things are really the same thing. And I thought that was so brilliant of Father McTague to, to, to show how these things are really the same thing in terms of what they leave out. Yes. Also, uh, he talks about his expression of prudential personalism based on natural law as being postmodern, but postmodern in a positive sense, not postmodern in the sense of deconstruction and everything is narrative we make up, but rather we cannot fail to take account of what happened in the modern period, which we can say started with Descartes and, and philosophically it led to the enlightenment and with Kant and so on. And that period, particularly, as he points out here and he summarizes elsewhere, it led from a theistic view, a personal God who intervenes in nature, to a deistic view, uh, an absent God who sets a clockwork going and then is no longer present, to then naturalism, materialism, which leads to nihilism, and the apparent escape in existentialism. That must be taken into account. But what we learn from that is that once you remove God from the equation, man equals zero. It's like when I was in high school, a Jesuit teacher put this little thing on the bulletin board, on the blackboard. He wrote down good, G-O-O-D. He says, take away God, G-O-D. What do you have left? Zero. <laughs> Very clever. Okay. It was. But you also need something else besides God. You need also the moral agent, and you also need his circumstances. This is where the exercise of the virtue of prudence comes in, right? And so if you, you know, you have to have God and man in harmony and relationship together and not just leave one out. That's right. But if there is no God, there is no moral agent, because you cannot explain this group of cells that we, that we inhabit as something That's personal right. and, and eternal unless there's a transcendent cost to them all. So Right. Yeah, if I don't if I if we if, if if I can maybe move on to page two hundred and sixteen if we want to try to keep sure. the sure. on ourselves. Yeah, you know, obviously I want to uh things that interest me, uh, we've got the romantics here. So about eight lines down. The romantics produce some great art, literature, music, and alas some highly influential and deeply flawed philosophy. With the dramatic flourish, the romantics opened the door to the more lazy and thoughtless moralizing that we see today in popular culture. Nowadays, it seems that the prefatory remark, I feel that, announces incontestable moral authority. And I love that connection because, you know, basically the romantics were reacting against empiricism, which in itself is not necessarily bad, but they overreacted, at least many of them did, not all of them to the fact that it's really all about my perception of things subjectively. And, of course, the consequence of that, logically, is that, yeah, we have the philosophy of I feel that. And if my feelings basically precede anything else, then that's the end of reason. 
And I, that's basically, I think that the bad, the, the fallout of that sort of romanticism is the deconstructionism that we're dealing with today. Well, how do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the area of life where that has had the most devastating results, of course, is in the area of sexual relationships and what is love. If you just reduce that to feelings, look at the mess you get, right? So, yeah, that was good that he made that link between that and romanticism. Yeah. Well? Well, you won't be surprised to know that I'm quite happy to skip now onto the, when he mentions the the. The, re- the Return of the King by Tolkien, but that's not to the epilogue. So I'm I'm going I'm, <laughs> I'm going I'm going to just pick it back on you on you folks till then. Well, what he does next, interestingly enough, is he shows you in you know, Father, you mentioned the book being postmodern and uh, or the, his uh, prudential personalism being something sort of postmodern. And one reason why it's postmodern is because it comes after these other attempts in the modern era to come up with moral systems. And he describes them one at a time, hedonism, consequentialism, utilitarianism. And he really masterfully shows each of these systems, you know, what their flaws are and why they just won't serve to give people a, um, a system of moral reasoning that really helps them be fully human. Yes. And I, again, he outlines that so clearly in that chart on page 207. And basically they're all there, utilitarianism with Mill, proportionalism, situations with Fletcher. Now they all are offspring of a teleological ethics, but they run, they run afoul of a full account of the moral act. And one by one, he explains why. And I don't think we should go into detail here because it's just, there's too much detail. But if you're you're interested in having a a clear understanding and guide to different moral methodologies which have occurred historically and which are the only ones that could occur historically when you think about what their components are – You've got it right here on this chart, and then he explains the chart as he goes on. Right. I'm going to jump all the way to the to Father Spitzer's afterward, because Father Spitzer, on page 255 and 256, are not numbered because it's a table. It's got four columns: worldview, metaphysics, philosophical anthropology, and ethical consequences. So. Worldview and metaphysics really go together because a worldview is, is, a, is a metaphysical position, really. But he looks at those four columns in what are the rows? Theism, row one. Deism, row two. Naturalism, nihilism, row three. And postmodernism, row four. And he not only in those columns has a brief description of each of those elements, but then in the following pages, he describes each one. So it's like a little summary of the book, you know, it all is. put together. And if you, if there's some part where you feel, gosh, I don't understand that, you go back into the book on that chapter and you've got it. So this is, you know, I didn't like the cover of this book. You know, we, Ignatius Press, we have beautiful covers. This, in my view, is not a beautiful cover. It's a very prosaic cover. 
It's a red toolbox, really. But the title is Real Philosophy for Real People, Tools for Truthful Living. And th this thing really is a philosophical toolbox. I mean, that's, it, that's, it's one of the better covers in terms of expressing what the book is about. Yeah, yeah I do agree with you that Father Spitzer's diagrammatical summary of the book, just on, those, on that double page by having the four rows and the four columns, we can correlate everything is so helpful. It's, it's, it's really, really good. Yeah. And the other thing Father Spitzer does is he shows you other places to go if you want to explore these topics further. He gives you other authors and other works. And, you know, this I, I was so surprised at how much in depth this afterward was and what a gift of Father Spitzer to to take the time to, to do this. I mean, he writes his own books. You know, he wrote this beautiful um, summary with further help. So God bless him. Yep. And he's legally blind. I mean, amazing I what he can do. I don't know whether I don't, I don't know whether the fact you've gone to the afterword by Father Spitzer means that we, I can go to the epilogue that precedes it or whether you want to go back to the no, chapter you, six. You may, you may, I was going to piggyback on you, but you piggybacked on me. So poor Vivian is going to carry the load here. But uh, I just want to say that. Father Spitzer and Father McTagg were both together as graduate students under Paul Weiss at Georgetown. Oh. Father Spitzer was already a priest. Father McTagg was still a layman, and his vocation came after that. So they're good friends as well as good philosophers. And good Jesuits. Yes. What, what, what I wanted to do, basically, just again, to pursue my own delights, uh, you know, at, at the beginning of the epilogue, Father McTagg quotes... Um, Gandalf, and at the end of the epilogue, he quotes Solzhenitsyn, two of my great favorites. So I thought maybe we could just very simply just connect those two quotes together and let them speak for themselves somewhat. So uh, page 247, the epigraph to the epilogue uh, from, the, from the Return of the King, um, Tolkien, Gandalf's words, the rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril, as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish. If anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward, did you not know? So again, first of all, we were all stewards, and all that we're meant to do basically is to ensure that something is passed on to future generations that could be fruitful. We can't rule the world, nor should we want to, um, but we can do that much. And then Alexander Solzhenitsyn, so he finishes the book with this quote from Solzhenitsyn. Well, just insert one thing. When I was first, start, first started flying, we had stewardesses also, not just stewards. Right, I know. Yes, yes. I'm not allowed to say steward, stewardess anymore because that's uh, that's a war on women. Um, <laughs> um, Solzhenitsyn, uh, page two hundred and fifty-one, final lines of the book, except for Father Spitzer's afterward. You can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this: Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. And then Father McTay's comment on that. You and everyone you know are being lied to and are being asked to participate in the lie. This book can help you to name the lie, tell the truth, live the truth, and teach others to do the same. And therefore, I close by asking you, now what?
<laughs> Always in our court. Well, that's a good place to conclude, it seems to me. And we'll have Father McTague respond to that next week. And so we ask him, okay, Father McTague, now what? And be ready for the week following Russell Shaw, the eight popes, and the crisis of modernity. That's it, folks. That's it, folks. That's God all, folks. God bless you all. See you next week. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.